All right, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go there. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Verse 19. What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what's offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And if any one of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whether you, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Verse 31, do all to the glory of God. So we touched on this at the end of the message last week. Do all to the glory of God. The glory of God. So we sum everything up and we say the purpose of everything in all of creation ultimately is this one thing, the glory of God. Now, people who don't believe in God don't like that. And they say that makes God nothing but a big, huge narcissist who is just full of himself. If this is all about Himself and His glory. And the reality is, He's God. It is about Him and it is about His glory. And we have no right to stand above God and judge Him and question why He has made all things, why He has worked all things, why He does all things for the purpose of His glory. This is what the prophet Jeremiah, this is what Paul reminds us when we do that. We are the pot saying to the potter, 
why are you making what you're making the way you're making it? And so, do we, can we, live with this truth, with this understanding, with this comprehension that ultimately all things, our very existence is for the glory of God. And we have to live with that understanding so that we don't go through life just focused on ourselves and how life affects me or mine. You know, it's my four and no more. Me and my four and no more. It's all about how life affects me and my four and no more. No, it's not. This is about something much bigger. It's about the glory of God. And so, remember we said this, when we focus on the glory of God, it takes the focus from ourself. And when our focus is on God's glory and not ourself, we can much easier release our rights. I can lay down my right for the sake of my brother much easier when I'm focused on the glory of God. If I'm focused on myself, then all I'm concerned about is my, my right. But God's glory enables me to release my right. God's glory makes it easier for me to reconsider the one another's, to reconsider my brother or my sister. It makes it easier to resist temptation, even when I can be assured that, that no one may know. And I say, well, you know, my sin doesn't affect anyone. No, it affects the glory of God. It affects my witness to powers and principalities. Ephesians 3.10 said that's been given to the church that we would make known to powers and to principalities the manifold wisdom of God. Character is what you do when no one else is around. But the problem is there's always someone around. might not be a human being, but there's always someone. God is ever-present. There's an unseen spiritual realm that we constantly give witness to, the Bible says. What is the witness we're giving to angels and demons? So, when we're focused on the glory of God, it enables us to much easier resist temptation. It enables us to risk our comfort and our convenience. It enables us to rejoice in all things, the good the bad and the ugly. Doesn't mean we have to be happy about all things, but can I find joy, the joy of the Lord in all things? There is a way to do that. I'm not saying it's easy, but there is a place that God wants us to come to where in spite of my circumstances, in spite of the brokenness, the strickenness, in spite of how torn I may be, that I can know His joy because of the promise that He has given to us that in spite of my brokenness, He has promised healing. In spite of the fact that I am stricken, He has promised to, to bind up my broken heart. In spite of the fact that I am downcast, He has promised to revive me and to raise me. And most importantly, 
when we're focused on the glory of God and it enables us to rest in His grace. Because at the end of all things, God doesn't always do what we want Him to do, how we want Him to do it, in the way that we want Him to do it. Just like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians when he says, I asked God three times to take this thorn from my flesh. And God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever dark valley we may be walking through, the promise of God is this, my grace is sufficient. Can we rest in God's grace? And understand that God knows how to get me through the valley of shadow. God knows how to get me from being torn to being healed. He knows how to take me from being stricken to raising me up to live in His sight. His grace does that. So we rest in His grace in spite of what may be the realities around us. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians that life is not just about you Corinthians. Your faith and your salvation and what God has given to you, is not just about you. Ultimately, he said, it's, it's about those around you, but even beyond that, he says it's about God's glory. So he says, do all, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Then he says this to them in verse 15, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul instructs the Corinthians as though they are all wise. So I'm talking to all of you here today as though you are all wise. I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to talk in a way that, that says, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you're tracking with me. That we're all in the same room and... and And we're hearing the same message and we're all submitted to this word. And this is kind of what Paul is saying. Now, I'm not saying about you guys, but but here's the thing. Paul knew, because I think you're all wise, okay? Now, Paul knew that not all the Corinthians were wise. Paul knew that not all in the Corinthian church were really saved. Well, what's he saying? He says, I'm, I'm talking to you as though you are wise. Judge for yourselves what I say. He knew they weren't all wise. He knew they weren't all truly born again, but he speaks to them as though they are because they profess to be such through their participation in the covenant community. So people that come into the church, I don't judge. You know, I can't look at someone and know whether they're saved or not. I know some people think they can do that, but I don't believe you really can do that. Because I can't truly see into a person's heart. Now, after you get to know a person, and you, you know, you can be a fruit inspector and say, you know, and this is what Paul does in his writings. He basically says, for instance, to, to the Corinthians, he says, uh, guys, I'm not saying that you, you aren't saved, but I'm saying based on the reports I'm hearing, You need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Judge yourself so that you won't have to be judged. In other words, he's he's 
inspecting fruit, right? And so we can't just look at a person and know whether they're saved or not. Can't do that. And so Paul is speaking, and we, I preach and I teach to the saved. You know, Sunday morning is really not for the lost. Sunday morning is for the saved. Now, that doesn't mean lost people aren't welcome. They are welcome. But really, the point of Sunday morning is to equip the saints. It's to worship God, and all are invited. It's to equip the saints. Why are you, saints, being equipped? Ephesians 4, 11 says that you are being equipped to do the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry? Jesus gave us our marching orders in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, into all the world, preach the gospel. He says, actually, Matthew says, go to the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So we're commanded as believers, the work of ministry is to go and make disciples. So you've got to become a disciple so that you can make a disciple. So the point of Sunday morning really is to, is to equip you to facilitate that mission taking place. And, and this is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians. He's saying, look, you guys are coming together acting like this is all about you. It's all about your rights. It's all about your gifts. It's all about all this hoopla that you got going on here. And you guys are missing the point. You're not conscious considering one another. You're totally focused on yourself. You're giving a horrible witness to the world out there. It's no wonder the people in Corinth don't want to be a part of your church. You're sending a double message. This is, this is what Paul's writing to the Corinthians. See, things haven't changed. I mean, the things we struggle with today in the church are the very same things that they struggled with in the church, the writing of the New Testament, the writing of the Old Testament. Why? Because human nature doesn't change. Because humans are born today with the same nature they were born with 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Since Adam fell in the garden, every human that's been born after the fall is born with the same nature, a nature of sin and death. This is why we keep repeating these things. And so Paul, is. this is why the Bible is relevant. It, People say, well, the Bible's not relevant because it was written too long ago. It's not up to date. It's absolutely up to date because human nature does not change. This is dealing with the sin nature of man. And what is the answer to that? The answer to that is Christ. So it's absolutely relevant. It doesn't matter that they didn't have electricity when the Bible was written. That's irrelevant. Because it's dealing with the heart of man, and the heart of man is the same until it's redeemed by God, and man is born again, and God gives man a new heart, and a new spirit, and a new life. And so, he's writing, and he's speaking and instructing them as though they are all wise. He said, I'm going to talk to all of you like believers, I'm going to talk to all of you like you understand what, what's going on here, and you judge for yourselves based on what the Scripture is teaching us, you judge for yourselves what I'm saying. And you guys should do that every week with me. What I say to you, 
you should judge for yourselves. You should take it to the Scripture, look at the Scripture, and judge for yourselves if what I'm telling you is lining up with the Scripture. And this is really what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do. Judge for yourselves what I say. So not everyone who comes into the church and participates in the life of the church and reaps the benefits of living in covenant community is automatically saved. Why? Because participation in church doesn't save us. Church membership doesn't save you. Christ saves us, right? So this is the importance and the power of preaching and teaching the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who are saved and for those who are being saved. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel saves us, the gospel grows us, the gospel instructs us, and the gospel makes us fruitful to the glory of the Father. So the gospel... Joshua and I sat up late last night talking about this very thing. You know, the gospel is not just this little subject. It's not this little part of the service where I'm telling you how you get saved. The gospel is to permeate every area of our life. It should permeate your home. It should permeate your relationships. It should permeate your work. It should permeate your play. It should permeate everything. Now, that doesn't just happen automatically. We have to be people who are purposeful in how we know the gospel, how we learn the gospel, how we assimilate the gospel, and how the gospel becomes part of of everything we are and everything we do, so that wherever we go and whatever we're doing, there is an expression of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you're going around quoting Scripture all the time, but but it may absolutely mean how you interact with that person that was just rude to you, or how you interact with that person that was very nice to you, how you interact with this total stranger, or how you interact with this person that you're... There's all kinds of ways the gospel is, is manifest in that way. And so when we preach and we teach, all that we, this, this book is the gospel. God is the gospel. Everything we talk about is gospel. So how do we take the truths of God and how do those things become just an integral part of our life in everything that we do? This is what we must learn to do as believers. So that the only witness is not what happens inside of these four walls for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. Because we're hidden here. I mean, you know, no one can see the lights on inside this building because if you go outside, you just see a building. So this is where we've got to take the light of Christ out of this building and take it with our life everywhere we go and understand that the gospel is God's powerful tool to bring about transformation in the lives of of men. Amen? So we are... One, look at this. So Paul says, I'm going to talk to you guys as wise men. You judge what I say. Verse 16, the cup of blessing, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Now he's talking about 
the very table that we come to. Now, their table looked a lot different. So in the early church, they primarily, you know, uh, Christianity was born out of Judaism, okay? So when Israel was carried away captive, they were taken into Babylon, the whole synagogue system kind of was developed while they were in captivity for 70 years. And so from that, God actually took that. That's kind of how we get our concept of the modern-day local church. Every city had a local synagogue, and the Jews would go to the synagogue and worship in the synagogue. They'd study the Scripture in the synagogue. And, and so when Christianity was birthed in and the New Testament church explodes on the scene in Jerusalem, uh, you know, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and on the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2 tells us that they met in the temple. They met from house to house. They went from house to house. And so they didn't have, they didn't, the church didn't go out and build buildings to worship in. They used the synagogue if it was allowed until they got kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, they'd use secular buildings if they didn't have a synagogue or they would, meet in homes. And so you see that as they begin to worship, one of the things that they would do every time they came together, and this is why we take communion every week, every time the church would come together, they would, they would come to the Lord's table. They would take communion. There would be a time they would have what was called an agape feast. It, they would have like a, what we call a potluck. They'd have that every time they met. They'd break bread together. And, and part of that real meal was a portion where they would break the bread and drink the cup, and they would remember the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church teaches that mystically, magically, supernaturally, the bread turns into the body of Christ, and the, the wine turns into the blood of Christ. Um, we don't believe that. But we also don't believe that It's just a wafer and a cup of juice that's just an empty symbol. There is something powerful, not in the substance of the bread and the substance of the cup, but there is something real and something powerful about that table, about taking that bread and taking that cup. And this is what's powerful about that. This is what Paul is saying, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And we're not literally drinking the blood of Christ when we drink the grape juice, but we are drinking a cup that is powerful in that we are in communion. We are declaring, we are making known, we are partaking together in the communion of the blood of Christ. We are remembering and honoring and renewing our covenant in His blood Every time we come to the table and we drink that cup, the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? It doesn't matter that it's just a little white wafer that tastes like cardboard. I don't know if any of you guys like the way it tastes or not. It's just kind of tasteless, right? Well, the point is not to have bread that tastes really good at communion. The point is, do we understand what that bread represents? When we take that bread, we are communing with the body of Christ. We're declaring, remembering, renewing the covenant that we have in the body of Christ. Why is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ so important? He says, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one 
bread. So what is it that unites us? It's not our ethnic background. It's not the fact that we all have Pastor Jeff's haircut or we all wear the same clothes or we're all the same height or we're all... No, what unites us is that we come to a table and our life is joined together in one life, just like I've got 10, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Cut them off and I've got 10 separate fingers and 10 separate toes, but, but they're joined to one life in my body. I've got two hands. They're joined to one life in my body. So I, my, my body members are not known in and of themselves. Their identity, they're known as part of me. We are many different members, but we are known by one identity. That identity is Christ. When we come to the table, we are renewing that covenant week in and week out. We are affirming that covenant week in and week out. We are reminding ourselves that though we are many, we are one. We are affirming the unity of the body of Christ. Christ is not divided. I mean, read Ephesians 5, this, this picture of, that Paul uses marriage as an analogy, as a picture. Why? Because God created marriage to communicate that picture of the oneness of his body, of Christ and his bride. And so when we come to the table to partake together of the cup and of the bread, we partake together as one in the communion of the blood of Christ and of the body of Christ. And, and for though we are many, we are one bread and one body. We are one kind. So this is why Paul says, he writes, for instance, in, in many of his letters, and he says, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian. We don't have these identities any longer. Our identity now is one. There's one kind, that is Christ. The Father There is only one kind acceptable to the Father. That is Christ. If you are in Christ, you are of that one kind that is acceptable. When we come to the table, we are declaring, though we are many, though we are diverse, we are one kind. Our identity is in the one new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Christ, and that's the key to our oneness, in our unity, and our identity. It's not a cause. It's not a purpose or a plan that unites us into one. It's Christ. It is His life and His very being that has saved us, raised us, and joined us together in Him. And all of this is to the glory of the Father. What did Jesus say? I only do what I hear the Father say. I only do what I've seen the Father do. I don't speak on my own. I don't do according to my own. I only do that which the Father. Why? Because I have not come but for one purpose, that is to do the will of the Father, he said. I've come for the glory of the Father. If that's that's Jesus, how much more should it be us? Amen? And so our fellowship is with Christ. And so Paul goes on, he reminds them what this table is. When you come and you take communion, this is what you're doing, he says. Church, do you not know that we're one bread, we're one body? That we're one in Christ? 
And we all partake of that one bread. Verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. Verse 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Remember what the question was. We haven't left. Paul hasn't gone on to a new subject. The question goes all the way back to chapter 8. Now, we, we have to break and do this a week at a time. These guys had the whole letter right there, and they read the whole thing at once, and they talked about the whole thing at once. How'd you like church to be that long, huh? We're going to meet on Sunday, and we're going to read Paul's letter. Well, his letter happens to be about 200 pages long. I mean, they're writing it on parchment paper. You know, we've got the luxury of a printing press. Can you imagine handwriting that out on parchment it would be much longer than, you know, the, the, the number of pages we have here. And we're going to get together, we're going to have church, we're going to eat a meal together, we're going to come to the table together, then we're going to read the letter that the Apostle Paul sent to us from Rome. And we're going to be here probably for about five or six hours at a minimum. You guys got a problem with that? I mean, you know, I mean, this is the, this is the way church was. This is the way church is in many parts of the world, you know. And so, so they, they come together, they're reading. So the original question goes back to chapter 8. Is it okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? This was the question. Paul is still dealing with here in chapter 10. So this, he brings, he brings it back here to verse 19. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or that what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, because he's already told us, An idol is nothing, and the meat offered to them, there is nothing wrong with it. It's not like tainted, it's not poison, it's not going to send you to hell. He said, what I'm saying though, we know an idol is nothing, we know what's offered to them is not anything. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Now what he's saying is, these gods that the Gentiles sacrifice this meat to, These gods are nothing, because there's only one God. So he says, what they're doing is sacrificing to these imaginary gods, but what they don't realize is, they're really sacrificing this to demons. These other idols, these gods that they worship, those aren't real. But the demons behind those gods, the, the forces of evil that's deceiving them into worshiping these false gods instead of the true God, Those demons are real. Demons are real. Idols are nothing, but demons are real. So he says, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy no, we should not. Or, or are we stronger than the Lord? Or Okay, if you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy, you think you can overcome the Lord in His anger? No, I don't think you can. You're not stronger than the Lord. So how do we understand in our context today what Paul is talking about? So an idol is nothing, for there's only one God. He told us that in chapter 8, verse 4. The animal sacrificed to an idol is no different than any other, but they offer these things to demons, and when you knowingly partake of these things, you are having fellowship with demons. 
which are real. The idol's nothing, but the demonic power behind the idol, that's real. So who are we to have our fellowship with? Well, 1 John 1, 3. And actually, this is the verse from which they got the name of this church, Christ Fellowship. Clifford Staten used 1 John 1, 3, and that was the verse the Lord gave him, and he named this church Christ Fellowship. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So who, as believers, do we have our fellowship with? We have our fellowship with with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what was happening in Corinth? Here's what was happening in Corinth. So our fellowship as believers is with the Lord, not with demons, right? We partake of the Lord's table And when we do that, we're declaring our fellowship is with the Lord. So when we come to this table, we're not only declaring our unity, we're declaring our fellowship with the Lord. Now here's what some of the members of the Corinthian church were doing. So some of these Corinthian church members were frequenting, because Corinth, this Greek city, was like this pagan capital. I mean, it it was bad. You think it's bad today? I'm telling you what, it was bad. So some of these Corinthian church members were frequenting the pagan temples and the pagan festivals. They were partaking of the things offered to these idols or these demons. And then they were coming into the church and they would come to the Lord's table and they didn't have a problem with it. Not only did they not have a problem with it, if someone called into question, hey, didn't I just see you at the pagan festival yesterday? You know, when they were worshiping that, yeah, I was there getting my steak, you know. Uh, Well, don't you know? Hey, I have freedom in Christ. Don't judge me. Hey, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. Hey, don't judge me. I've got freedom in Christ. I can go to the pagan festival and eat what I want, and I can come to this table and and, and take the bread and take the cup, and, and there's no problem with it. This is what they were doing. So they would come to the Lord's table, have no problem with their actions, but in fact they would boast about their liberty. So they were not only having fellowship with demons, but they were provoking the Lord, and they were harming the weaker brothers, the weaker believers, and all the while they were seeking their own pleasure. So some of these guys, it's like, okay, I don't care if these guys are sacrificing to idols. Well, an idol's nothing, you're right. But there is a demonic power behind that. And it's one thing, you know, we're going we're gonna to see, Paul gives very practical advice here, okay? He says, you can't drink the cup from the Lord, of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. So the key here is verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So verse 24 is the key to understanding our principle of Christian liberty. True, 
as some of these Corinthians argued, the idol is nothing and the meat is nothing. Paul says, true, that is true. And you shouldn't feel bad because you ate meat sacrificed to idols. There's, don't feel bad about that. But you should not be going to these temples and these festivals and these ceremonies that are blatantly demon worship and participating in that and then coming to the table of the Lord and, and feeling like no big deal. Because you can't have fellowship with demons and fellowship with the Lord. Something's going to have to give here. There's, there's going to be there's a consequence here to this. And you don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy and, because you're not going to win that battle is basically what Paul is saying. So Paul says, look, the, the way to understand this is, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful and not all things build up. And no one should seek his own, but the other's well-being. So let no one seek his own interest, his own pleasure, but let each one seek the other's well-being. So we shouldn't seek our own at the expense of others' well-being. How, do we, how does this work out? So Paul says, here's how this works out. Verse 25. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. So you're living in this huge city with probably two or 300,000 people in it. You live in town. Where are you going to buy your food? You're going to buy your food in Corinth, same place you buy your food here. You live in town. You probably have this little, you know, apartment you live in. You're going to go to the market and you're going to buy your food. Well, what if the meat in the market has been sacrificed to idols? Paul says the idol is nothing. There's nothing wrong with the meat. Just go to the market and buy your meat. Don't ask any questions. It doesn't. It doesn't matter because you're not. You're not going to become possessed by a demon by eating that meat, you're not, you're not buying that meat to participate in idol worship. You're just trying to buy groceries for your family. So go to the market and buy your meat and don't ask any questions. Verse 26, why? For the earth is the Lord's and its fullness. God created the cows that they're cutting the steaks off of. So eat it and give thanks to the, to the Lord for it. If any of those... And he goes on, if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you. So if some of the pagans you've been witnessing to or some of the pagans at the market that you've become friends with or acquaintances with, if they invite you to their house for dinner, should we go? They're pagans. If you want to go, go eat with them. And you eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions. And eat with a clear conscience, even though they're pagans and they're unbelievers. And more than likely, they did get their food from the market, and more than likely, the meat was sacrificed to an idol. He says, just eat it. Don't ask any questions. But look what he says. Asking no questions for conscience sake. Now keep that for conscience sake. In the back of your mind, we're going to deal with this here in just a minute. It's not for your conscience sake, but for others' conscience sake. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake. 
Not, not for your conscience sake, but for others. Verse 29, he explains, Conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other person. So the person that says, hey, did you know that that meat sacrificed to idols? Obviously, they've got an issue with it, and they believe eating that meat is going to somehow contaminate them or damage them spiritually. So Paul says, at that point, don't eat it for the sake of this weaker brother, though there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating that meat. Not for your conscience sake, but for his conscience sake. And then Paul says this, he asks this question, for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? In other words, what Paul is saying there is, your conscience should remain clear about eating meat, even though you will lay down your right for the weaker brother. Don't let the weaker brother's conscience, his weakness of faith, don't don't be judged by his conscience. But be willing to lay down your right to eat that meat for the sake of the weaker brother so that you don't become a stumbling block to him. That doesn't mean you can't ever eat meat, but if you've got someone right there and he says, hey, you lay down your right for that weaker brother. You know, if you're invited over to the uh, unbeliever's house who is a, uh, an alcoholic and he's big into AA, you don't go to his house and take him a bottle of nice wine for a house. Uh, for a gift, you know. Oh, I brought this nice bottle of wine for our dinner tonight. I know you're a recovering alcoholic, but, you know, it's what I do whenever I go to new people's homes. No? Uh, Okay, is there anything wrong with you drinking a glass of wine with your dinner? Absolutely not. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink. It says it's a sin to be a drunkard. But it wouldn't be very inappropriate to go to this brother's house and take him a bottle of wine when you know He's a recovering alcoholic. That, that's your liberty. You could even sit there and drink a glass of wine in front of him. If you wanted to do that, technically, it's lawful, but it's not going to be helpful, and it's not going to be very edifying for him. And at that point, your right now has become your sin because you're self-seeking in your own pleasure and your own self-interest. You have just put above your brother. So in another scenario, perfectly appropriate to take a bottle of wine as a housewarming gift. If, if everybody's there is fine with that and they understand the perimeters of the scripture here. You understand what I'm saying? So this is what Paul says. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful and not all things build up. So there, there's a time when we need to be willing to lay down our rights. So he uses this word conscience, not so that you would feel guilty. He says, no, you don't feel guilty because the other guy feels guilty about it. He feels guilty. He's the weaker brother, so you lay down your right for his conscience sake, not your own. You're okay. You know, when you get home and you've got that leftover ribeye that you bought at the meat market, don't worry about where it came from. Just eat it with a clear conscience. It's okay. So in other words, your conscience should remain clear about eating meat even though you may lay down your right for the weaker brother. So what is Paul doing? He's maintaining the rights of the believer, but not to the harm of others. He provides this tension throughout this thing. He's not diminishing the rights of the believer, but he's making it very clear, we don't exercise our rights at the harm 
of others. Verse 30, but if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? If I partake with my heart, turn to the Lord to thank in thankfulness for his provision, not in worship to some demon, knowing that he is the one and living God, why should anyone speak evil over me for the food that I eat? That's basically what Paul was saying. If I regularly, now let's just say that if I regularly get my ribeye steak down at the strip club, served to me by a mostly or barely dressed woman, and I convince you that I only go there because they have such great specials on their steak, and I do that on a regular basis, and, and I, I ask the Lord, I give thanks every time I go there and eat my steak, and I ask God to bless my food, and I'm thankful that he's provided it for me. You know what I've done? I've just, I've just used my liberty to justify my idolatry and my sin. And this is what Paul was saying. No, look, you guys have liberty, but don't use your liberty as a justification to go down to the, to the pagan festival and the temple and participate in those acts of worship and that idolatry and then come to this table and feel like you've, you're, you're good. You're good to go because you're not good to go. Because you're provoking the Lord to jealousy and you're, you're harming your weaker brother. It's kind of like, well, I subscribe to Playboy, but I, I don't look at the pictures, I only read the articles. Yeah, right. Okay. So, you know, we, we, you see, we don't use our liberty. And so we can get into idolatry in these things. So if I go to the house of an unbeliever to have a meal and I find out later that the food I ate was... Because this is true, you know, there are people that have altars in their homes. So my in-laws, their neighbors down the street, they were from uh, somewhere in the Middle East, and, and they built this, like, elaborate altar inside their home, and they've got their own guru over there in India, and, and they've got their own gods that they worship, and they set up this little temple thing in their house. Now, what if I invited over to these people's house, and I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know any of this is going on. I don't know they've got an altar in the back of their house. And, and I go over there, and I, I eat my meal, and I later find out that the food that I ate was sacrificed to their false god. And what Should I repent? No. I shouldn't feel condemned at all, because I didn't go to their house to worship their false god. And, and, you know, their green beans were just as good as your green beans. They were no different. There was no change in the molecular structure because their green beans were offered up to a false god. They all came from God. They were all God's creation. But now, if I go to that house and they tell me, we're going to have a ceremony today and we're going to worship our God and the meal we eat is going to be an act of worship to uh, this God and we've got an altar back here. And now, now, that's a different story. At that point, I would have to lovingly and respectfully explain to them that I can't participate in the worship of your God. You, you see the difference? I mean, I will, in, you know, if the Jehovah's Witness come to my door, I will invite them in and I'll discuss the Bible with them. But I won't let them preach from this pulpit, and I'm not going to go to their house of worship and worship with them because 
they don't worship the same God. They, they use the same terminology, but it's, it's not the same Jesus. It's not the same. And so Paul is maintaining the rights of the believers, but not at the harm of others. Amen? So whatever you do, so he goes on, verse 31. Therefore, whatever you do, eat or drink, or whatever, I'm sorry. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Do all to the glory of God. That's a command that we should not take lightly. So when we carry on our conversations with others, are we carrying on those conversations to the glory of God? When we eat our food, are we eating our food to the glory of God? In our relationships, are our relationships to the glory of God? Do all to the glory of God. That takes the focus off of just me. I may have the right to eat that or drink that, but right now I'm more concerned about the glory of God, which means I'm going to be more concerned. I'm going to reconsider my brother or my sister. And I'm going to lay down my right for the glory of God and for the good, the help, and the building up of my brother or my sister. Give no offense. Does that mean, well, what if my preaching of the gospel offends people? Because it does. Does that mean I shouldn't preach the gospel? No. Give no offense. In other words, Jesus was called the rock of stumbling. He offended a lot of people. What Paul is saying is you don't exercise your rights, your personal rights, for selfish interest, selfish pleasure at the expense of others. If the preaching of the gospel, if speaking the truth and love offends people, there's nothing you can do about that. They must hear the truth because the truth is the only thing that can set them free. I don't have the power to persuade people to do anything. And if I could persuade people to be saved, their salvation would not be worth anything because it would only be based on my ability to persuade them. The gospel is the power, so it's the gospel that goes to the heart and transforms the heart of a person. And so sometimes, listen, the gospel is either going to save them or it's going to offend them. It, and the gospel that offends them today may end up being the gospel that will save them later on because maybe today you're just planting seeds. Maybe today you're just breaking up hard ground. I don't know. God knows how to break up hard hearts and turn them into good soil that can receive the word. So it's not our place to judge what kind of soil. He just tells us, sow the seed. And don't worry about the soil that it's falling on. I'll take care of the soil. You sow the seed. If it offends, don't worry about it. Now, we don't just try to be offensive, but we've gone to the other end of this. We've fallen into the ditch on the other side in America. We talk about the love of God, and we talk about God, and we talk about Jesus, and we talk about the Scripture, 
and, but we don't want to talk about any of the things that indicate that people are really going to be judged. There are people that are really going to go to hell because they have rejected Jesus. And God will allow them to spend eternity in hell separated from him. There's people today in the church that say, no, don't, we don't talk about that. N- no, we have to talk about that because that's part of the gospel. If I don't understand what I'm being saved from, then I'm never going to understand what I've been saved to. And if we don't talk about sin, and if we don't talk about God being just and loving, even in judging people and giving them their just judgment, then we're not presenting the whole picture of who God is. And our understanding of what love is and who God is is perverted and skewed. And this is how we fall into the ditch on the other side and we, that we don't want to talk about sin and we don't want to talk about things that, that are displeasing to God. Let's just leave those things and we're just going to talk all about the good things. And so we've turned church into a self-help, self-improvement seminar on Sunday morning. That's not what the gospel is. It's not. Because that might serve you for a little bit, but it's not going to save you for eternity. And God is not interested in just giving you your best life here on earth. He's interested in saving you for eternity. And you need to know what you've been saved from. You need to know and I need to know that I don't deserve his salvation. And I'm not a bad person because I committed murder. I'm a bad person because I was born in sin. And my morality or lack of morality have nothing to do with my sinfulness. There are some very moral people who are lost and dead in their sin. And God has utterly rejected them because they are not of the right kind. They have not been brought into the Son. Do you understand this? That Jesus Christ is the only man acceptable to the Father. And if you are not in Christ, you are unacceptable. I don't care how moralistic your lifestyle is. I don't care how often you go to church and how much money you give to your church. Your morality will not save you. Only Christ can. Your morality will not erase your sinfulness. It cannot change your nature. Only Christ can. Only the power of the gospel can do that. Give no offense. Don't selfishly consider only yourself, but selflessly consider others in exercising your freedom in Christ. Not seeking my own profit, Paul says, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So the principle of exercising our liberty in Christ to the glory of God will demand that we do not use our liberty as a means for our own self-seeking and our own profit at the expense of others. Scripture teaches that we are to seek the profit of many with the purpose in mind that they may be saved and they will not be saved apart from the gospel, which necessitates that we tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. Amen? And if that offends them, that's not really your problem. That's God's problem. But if in you exercising your Christian liberty become offensive to people and you don't seem to have a care about that, well, that is your problem. 
And we need to repent of those attitudes that are self-centered. So my freedom in Christ should be a witness to the glory of God, not a means to seek my own self-interest or my own well-being. Amen? So here's my challenge to you. It's that you would purpose in whatever you do to do all to the glory of God. To live conscious of others around you and to temper your freedom in Christ with love and care for others. I challenge you to seek to be helpful to others, to build up others, and to seek the profit of many at the expense of your own that they may be saved. That may mean that you're going to have to tell someone the truth and it might not be popular with you. Maybe it would cost you a friendship. Maybe it would cost you a relationship. But if it comes down to that, what is more important, that you would tell them the truth in hopes that the truth would set them free? Or to allow people to continue living a lie because you don't want to offend them? Jesus did not allow people to continue living a lie He was not afraid to offend people with the truth. He said, offending you with the truth is more important for you in the eternal scheme of things than allowing you to continue to live in a lie and think that you're okay and have a false sense of security. Let's pray. Let's all stand. Holy Father in heaven, we ask you to work in us, to work through us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We ask, God, that You would mold us and shape us, that You would transform us and conform us to the image of Your Son. We ask, God, that You would not allow us to stay in our places of comfort and convenience. We ask You, God, to prod us and to discomfort us And Lord, if we're blind to open our eyes and if we're deaf to open our ears, to be aware of the people around us, that God, we would live our lives with purpose, that we wouldn't see Sunday morning church or church in general as just a place I go to feel better or to get something to help me get through the week. That God, we are called and commanded to come here, to assemble here, to be equipped so that we can go out and do the work of ministry, so that we can hear the gospel, learn the gospel, be instructed in the gospel, so that we can go out and live the gospel and be a light and be salt to the world around us. God, deliver us from self-centered Christianity. Help us, God, to live selflessly, Give us a hunger, a thirst, a desire, God, for the gospel to permeate our life and our lifestyle so that wherever we go and whatever we're doing, Lord, there is always a witness for you there. Not in my ability to quote scripture, but just in my ability to live a life that manifests your love and your light, that the world would see something and sense something different in us and about us. And that we would have the boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit to open our mouths and declare truth 
and believe that truth has the power to set men free. And that we would be willing to do that, God, even at our own cost. Even at our own convenience. Even at our own popularity. But Father, I pray that we would be a people that though we may speak the truth and the truth will be offensive, there would be such a love in our being and in our person that God, the love of God that permeates our life would would soften the blow that the truth would bring. And though men may be offended at our words, they would always know the motive of our heart is love. Not harm, but life. Help us to be a people, God, like that. Help us to be your people that manifests your life and brings honor and glory to your name. Amen. If anyone is here and you want prayer, I know we prayed for a couple of people, but maybe you would like prayer about something in your life. I would love to pray with you. If you're here and you've got questions about your salvation, and you say, you know what, I just feel like I need to talk to someone about my spiritual condition. You know, I don't give, I was telling Joshua, I don't give an altar call every week. Because what you need to be responding to is the gospel. But every week I give people an opportunity and I invite you. And I don't make an assumption that because you've been in church X number of years or you were raised this or raised that. Like I said, I can't look into people's hearts. But God knows the condition of your heart. And as this is the importance of, of, of communicating the gospel. When the gospel goes forth, listen, the Spirit of God will reveal the condition of your heart. And if you know your heart, something is not right, then let's have a conversation. Let's pray together. Let's talk together. Let's go to God together. And let's make things right by the grace of God. Amen? So you're always welcome to come and we'll pray. I'll talk with you and answer any questions you might have about anything we've talked about on any given Sunday. Amen? The Lord bless you, keep you, may His face shine upon you. Have a blessed and a wonderful day. Amen.